When it comes to weight loss, no two people are the same. That's why Noom builds personalized plans based on your unique psychology and biology. Take Brittany. After years of unsustainable diets, Noom helped her lose 20 pounds and keep it off. I was definitely in a yo-yo cycle for years of just losing weight, gaining weight, and it was exhausting. And Stephanie. She's a former D1 athlete who knew she couldn't out-train her diet, and she lost 38 pounds. My relationship to food before Noom was never consistent. And Evan, he can't stand salads, but he still lost 50 pounds with Noom. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. Even through the pickiness, Noom taught me that building better habits builds a healthier lifestyle. I'm not doing this to get to a number. I'm doing this to feel better. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom users compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. A new SBI cold case squad is helping to reopen unsolved murder cases across the state in hopes of arresting killers. Yeah, there are nearly a thousand unsolved murders in North Carolina. The unit is focused on cases that have old biological evidence or DNA that can be resubmitted using new technology. News 13's Kimberly King reports on the work that's already underway with Asheville Police. Asheville cold case detective Kevin Taylor is working. You know, we want to see justice served. In each of these binders is a murder unsolved. Amber Lundgren, homicide from 1997. Pam Murray, homicide from 1987. Virginia Olson, the UNCA student found slain in 1973. The binders only have so much information, but in each case, DNA evidence could hold the key. Detective Taylor begins with Amber's tragic tale Friday, June 6th. Well, that occurred in June of 1997. She died from a single stab wound to the neck. The last we had been able to determine, Amber was seen leaving barcode shortly after 3 a.m. Another case is that of 23-year-old Pam Murray. Pam, with a wide grin seen in this old newspaper clipping, was abducted from the Asheville Mall in 1987. She had gone to the mall that day uh, to pick up a Valentine's gift for her boyfriend. And unfortunately, she just ran into the wrong person. And her body was found that same day, also on the Zellia Road in East Asheville, where she was shot and killed. And then her vehicle was returned to the Asheville Mall. Even farther back is the case of UNCA student Virginia Olson. Virginia sexually assaulted and stabbed to death. While each case is old, Detective Kevin Taylor says all three have viable DNA that could be retested in hopes of matching a suspect. That's where the SBI's new cold case detective unit comes in. They will encourage the local law enforcement agencies to say, hey, let's sit down and look at this case again and look, let's go look at your evidence. Let's get it all out again and see what we can resubmit or submit, initially submit, to the crime laboratory for DNA analysis. Asheville police hope to resubmit DNA in all three cases. With Amber Lundgren, Detective Taylor says a rape kit was done. Yes, it was. And you still have that evidence? Yes. I think this case is one of, of probably several that we have that we're hoping that we could work with the SBI on, on this project. The grant is, was written so that um, 
we would have cooperation with the state crime lab. In some cases, SBI funding is available for testing at specialty labs. Two former SBI homicide detectives are reviewing cases around the Asheville area. A total of eight detectives involved in the SBI cold case unit statewide. Detectives reviewing lab reports, crime scene photos, interviews and evidence to pursue one thing, justice. It's very important that that we work hard to try to solve these cases even 20, 30 years later. Even though they're cold, it doesn't mean they're forgotten. In Asheville, Kimberly King, News 13. Hey, lovely listeners, and welcome back to Crime Analyst and the Intelligence Cell and part three of my interview with Bill and Kristen. The clip at the top of the episode was from May 2015. As I keep saying, how many more women must die before proactive action is taken by law enforcement to identify these dangerous men when their behaviour is escalating? There are always warning signs in these power and control motivated crimes against women and these men will have been acting out across their life course to significant women in their lives and women that they don't know. It really is long overdue that the domestic violence, coercive control and stalking high-risk factors are used in a proactive capacity to problem-solve violent men when they control and abuse the women in their lives who are supposed to matter the most to them. There is no greater risk factor for male violence to women outside the home and to other women they have relationships with. We must make these links and take domestic abuse, coercive control and stalking seriously. Law enforcement must be proactive in their approach and use the DASH risk model to identify the top 10 to 20 violent and abusive men and risk manage them and close down opportunities for them to offend, just like what's done with organised and serious criminals and terrorists. And by the way, these men are terrorists. They terrorise women. Doing this saves lives and money and ensures these dangerous men are off the streets and cannot harm other women. Prevention and protection must be the focus and it means a switch of gears for law enforcement to use the DASH risk model to ask questions about risk and then to manage the risk that they pose. The victim holds up a mirror to the perpetrator and then law enforcement can manage the risk that they pose. And I have to say that no one wakes up one day in their third or fourth decade of life and starts stalking and raping and murdering women. I've never seen it yet. In fact, all the cases that I've been involved with, there was always precursor behaviour that wasn't taken seriously. And that's not okay. There's so much that we can do to prevent and to protect women and children, but it means taking male violence to women and children seriously when it's reported. Okay, I just had to share that because it's just mind-blowing to me how many women have been brutally murdered and how many serial perpetrators are just let off the hook time and time again. Okay, so with that having been said, let's jump back into this illuminating interview with Bill and Kristen. And I don't know, by the way, whether you had Belinda Ann Ashburn, for example, on your radar. If she was in, Kristen, what you originally said you you said you now have six people who you believe he may well have well and i've been sitting here kind of going over my list and i'm realizing it's more than that 
because there are other cases that, as you said, we have listeners who are just sort of sending cases our way and going, okay, what about Donna Kennedy in 1989 in Chesapeake, Virginia, who was found with the back and front door of her house open, her shoes left inside, and she was found shot to death and left outside a canal. What about Donna Kennedy? Well, I'm not an investigator. I cannot rule that in or out. But boy, that sounds very similar to Mary Harding to me. Are there any dates or any specific details regarding I'm, that? I'm sending you information on it right now, actually. Great. <laughs> so that you can take a good look at it. But we have people who are very, very dedicated to finding out answers for this case. And we're very lucky that we at some points I know are overflowing with information. And because it is a lot for Bill and I to handle, we are sending everybody like, please send this stuff to law enforcement. It can't just be us because we are not investigators. We want law enforcement to be able to do their jobs. But we've been overwhelmed by the outpouring of support, the kind of tips that are coming in. Every episode that we have put up, people have offered really thoughtful commentary. They have offered their own thoughts and feelings. I mean, it feels like a real community of ideas that is coming together on all of our Facebook pages, whether it's Mind Over Murder or Colonial Parkway Murders. And I would encourage people, if you think there's a case that fits this profile, send information, like send it to the state police, send it to the FBI. You can send it to us too. Absolutely. But like, please send it to law enforcement because they have the wherewithal to work with this. We're just two overworked podcasters. <laughs> we don't have the resources to follow up on everything, but we're, we're damn sure going to try. And we're not investigators and we don't pretend to be, you know, Kristen and I are not law enforcement. Now, we have been given an opportunity with Mind Over Murder and the social media platforms that we've created to get the conversation going and to keep it going. And people are coming truly out of the woodwork. Even three minutes before we signed on, I got a very, very thoughtful lead from, again, someone that's new to the case, but very interested in helping us in any way that they can. And they actually had a suggestion about something I thought, this is absolutely brilliant. And I'll follow up on this as soon as we're done recording Crime Analysts today, because we want to keep these things moving. And the conversation is amazing. And we're hearing from people that we've never met before, never spoken to in Lancaster County, which is a place I've never even been. And people are letting us know, like, what they're hearing, what they're, what they're thinking. And people are trying to now provide us with information, which FBI and, and Virginia state police have asked for, which is timeline information about where Alan Wilmer used to dock his boat or where did he fish and crab and oyster people on the water knew this man. And so if we can put him at different places and times, hopefully our partners in law enforcement can build out from there in terms of, okay, he was at this place at this time. Do we have unsolved cases from that same time frame in that area? And I have a feeling these things are going to come together. And they really do need to be looking both down in North Carolina and I would say even as far up as Maryland as well. Um, if this guy is a waterman, he could very well be using the Intracoastal Waterway to go both north and south to perpetrate some of these crimes. 
We had the pleasure to have Jim Fitzgerald and Dr. Ray Carr on our podcast the other day to talk about some of their thoughts and insights about this. And the term that Fitz used that really struck me is apex predator. And now I can't stop thinking about that term and all of the connotations that come along with the idea of being an apex predator. I think that Alan Wade Wilmer Sr. was using this whole entire geographic area as a hunting ground. And he knew that he was the biggest fish out there and was using it to every advantage that he could that he could think of. And I, it's a chilling thought, but now that I've got it in my head, it isn't leaving anytime soon. One of our researchers just sent me something today. I haven't even had time to send it to Christian yet. He was analyzing the seasons for crabbing and oystering. You know, there are times of, of the year where these things are active and then they're not active. And it's funny, even the murders we know about line up very closely with those seasons. Mm-hmm. He would be in the area the Tidewater area is what they refer to that part of Virginia. This is near where the Colonial Parkway murders happened at these certain times of year, because those would be the times when it would be most lucrative and oftentimes regulated for fishing, crabbing, and oystering. And it's amazing how much these murders line up with the business opportunities that would be presented to him as a waterman. Yeah, well, that would make sense. And as I always say, you know, the most effective serial killers are the ones that we don't know about that are hiding in plain sight. And to the point of an apex predator, yes, hunting humans, that's exactly what he was doing. And at what age did he start to focus on humans? And it probably was quite early on in his life. So that has to really be be thought about within the timeline, how far back you go. And equally, as I said before, family members are really important to understand really what was going on behind closed doors with his ex-partner, with other people in his life, with his children. But hiding in plain sight, this was somebody who was relatively successful within his offending career. So we know that he will be able to present as something quite different because no one was saying, this guy, this guy, this guy, he's a problem. And if they weren't saying it, but he was, what does that tell us? That tells us that there was fear. And why were people fearful about him and or the family? So at each point, you know, it's peeling back the layer of the onion. And and what does that mean when we understand that? So I think it's so important with all these cold cases that they are really looked at. Cold cases always present a problem. But there was someone digging on Amber's case because they put it out in a Dateline episode and there was somebody behind that case who really wanted to solve it. So I just hope that there are outstanding forensics and the same with Belinda Ann Ashburn's case. And I'm going to just go back and ask a question. Was she on your radar, Belinda Ann Ashburn? Was that a case you had heard about? No, I don't think she was. That's a new name for us. Because again, it just shows the power of these conversations that we have to rely on other people who have good intelligence locally. And what it also tells me is that people are frustrated locally. They are sharing information for a reason. And that's also important that when you say we're not investigators, we're the point is that they trust us to send information to why wasn't it forwarded to law enforcement back in the day? Well, it could well be that 
the questions were never asked. But it could equally be that the trust does not exist between certain members of the community and law enforcement. And actually, I can understand that, given everything that I'm finding out, not just about the Colonial Parkway murders, but many other cases in Virginia, that women being killed just hasn't really been taken seriously. And Catherine Miles and I were, in our conversations, you know, we shared anger about that, of how little women's lives matter. And that's not okay for male law enforcement just to write it off and to do nothing. And and unfortunately, it is a, a continuous theme even today, and that reputations of families appear to be more important than solving cases of women being brutally killed. And for me, that's not okay. Calling all lovers of mystery. Prepare to don your detective hat in June's Journey, a free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. Take a trip in time to the glitzy 20s and play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. The thrill is endless with new chapters added weekly, allowing you to not only enjoy the detective adventure, but also to personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Yes, it can be uncomfortable for families to have their family members and their line of family questioned. It feels probably horrific and untenable. But imagine, imagine being Bill Thomas and Kathy being brutally murdered of how it feels for all of you and every family member who seek answers. And that's what we have to remember. Are we on the right side of this? Are we asking the right questions? Are we protecting the right people? I know you both are, but I'm just rhetorically throwing it out there when that fear centre of each of us might vibrate. And who are we protecting? And is that honourable? And does it have integrity? Surely it's far better that we shine a light if somebody has been abusive and violent to women, that they are held to account, even posthumously, even in death, that there are answers and accountability. Yeah, otherwise, did those women even matter? Did those people even matter? The other thing is I want to respond to something you said, which is quite important, Laura. I have a concern, a profound concern, that reputation management, if you will, is also going on at the law enforcement level. A lot of what came out at the press conference three weeks ago didn't cover the fact that Alan Wade Wilmer Sr. was suspect number one in the disappearance of Keith Call and Cassandra Haley. We know this for a fact, and yet somehow that was glossed over at the press conference. And even when reporters asked, when was Alan Wade Wilmer Sr., when did he first move onto your radar? Law enforcement refused to answer the question. I have a concern, a profound concern, that the FBI and the Virginia State Police and other local law enforcement agencies are more concerned about their reputation than getting to the bottom of just how horrific a murder series are we talking about here? But if we did the work and agreed that we were all going to move forward as adults, lumps and all, mistakes and all, we know mistakes happen. We're not here to 
make anyone look bad, but we are looking for answers. And the people of Virginia and these adjoining states and potentially dozens of cases, they deserve to be solved and they deserve answers, not just Kathy Thomas, Rebecca Dowski, but everybody who may have been touched by this horrible, horrible man. Bill, you always show such tremendous measure in your thoughts and your responses. And I really value you for that. And I don't know how you do it, quite frankly. And I want to say that because I've worked with many families, you know, across my my time. And some of them I've been the first person to go up to and apologize and say, I'm sorry, we got it wrong. We should have done more to protect your daughter. And I've seen them look at me because some of my colleagues have told them, don't go looking for answers. There are no answers here. And there I am saying, I'm sorry, we should have done more to protect your daughter. And that response has changed everything for them. To throw our hands up in the air and to admit we should have done more. With some, it's like witnessing this weight lift off their shoulders for them to be able to move into the next stage of wherever they are, of being heard, being felt, it being acknowledged. And most families have said to me, look, we get that there's human error. We get that people get things wrong. You're not perfect. You make decisions. You don't always have perfect information. But what we can't stand is a cover-up and the lies. And that's when we really get angry about what's gone on. But you never have. And what I want to say is for those guarding their reputation, and I know you probably have off the mic, but you never have with me. And even if you did, you are right to have that anger and to hold that anger. That is absolutely okay too. But for law enforcement, trying to protect reputation, it normally comes from a fear basis, a fear center of litigation and so forth. And as I always say to my colleagues, families know we get things wrong. Just lean into it and apologize and say, we will learn everything to get better and to be better and to do better. And we don't have the answers yet, but we would do everything to try and find the answers. That normally goes a long way for people. If you are authentic in it, and I'm not just saying, say it just to shut people up. I'm saying that you you talk to them as human beings, as if this could be your brother, your sister, your mother, of their right to seek answers about what was done and what wasn't done at the time. And your right to be curious about that and your right to keep trying to find answers. So I too feel that there's a lot of reputation management, not just for families, but for professionals as well. And, and I've seen it across my career, like I've said. And, you know, with one of my cases, I was the first person to go up to a grieving mother and say, I'm sorry. And then what followed was a load of senior officers who followed my lead. And for the mother, that made a huge difference to get that acknowledgement, to get the apology, to be validated. And I still train law enforcement on that case. And it's really hard. It's painful. There are cases that eat away at you because you see failings. But we have to try and learn. We have to try and do better and be better. And what I saw on January the 8th was not good. It just smacked of things being withheld. And of course, we don't know the reason why. But it even for me, sat there watching, it didn't look good. And I really hope that they are doing better behind the scenes. I hope so too. But regarding that acknowledgement that you mentioned, so far I haven't seen an ounce of it. 
I look forward to the day. I look forward to the day, but so far, I haven't seen an ounce of that. And I'm so sorry about that because oftentimes with law enforcement, once they dig in, they double down and dig in even more. They become so defensive that they forget really what they're defending. It just becomes about being right and you being the enemy and you being wrong rather than it's a family member who's just trying to honor their loved one and get answers. And I said exactly that on a conference call with the FBI some years ago with senior people. I said, since when does the brother of the murder victim become the enemy? Because that's what you're treating me like. Yeah, so a defensive mode can be very powerful. And as I train law enforcement in risk assessment and the difference between defensible decisions and defensive decisions, I mean, you know, I've worked many cases where I've seen the defensive and they almost just back themselves further and further into a corner and the cover-up and the things that are then said are even worse, quite frankly. And it's really disappointing to see that that's, get, that's still going on here. But what I will share with you is that I'm right by your side asking for answers to these questions. And it's not up to law enforcement, other family members in other cases to shut you down. And you have a right to ask, you have a right of reply as Kathy's brother. And people don't like being questioned on the whole. And I think you found a different way to ask questions with some of the people that you're dealing with. But I still sense, you know, the tree is shaking and a lot of things are falling out. And I just want to make sure that those things are scooped up. And I'm trying to be helpful to law enforcement, as you both are, delicately be helpful, politely be helpful, and make sure that they are on the right track with things. And I hope that that's what they're spending their time and energy. That's what they're invested in and moving forward with this timeline. I hope so. And I can only apologize, Bill. I know I wasn't around with this case, but I, I'm always just mortified about how you've been treated. It just feels visceral to me to have people talk to you like that. It, it's just so not okay for those words to leave someone's mouth and for them to think that you can talk to someone like that. You know, you are my friend. So some might say, well, I'm biased. No, it's that I've worked with a lot of families and talked with them a lot about their pain and their desire for and in the search for the truth. The search for the truth, no matter how ugly or how painful it is, you still want to know. And there's no such thing as closure. In this case, it's still ongoing and it's still very active and things are open. But I feel, like I said, the energy is moving in the right way and we're hearing about different cases. And I think that that's all positive. And I know you always try and stay in the positive. And that's why I admire you so much on this incredibly long and painful journey that you've been on. Well, thank you. And at the same time, I want to make it clear, I'm far from perfect. And my mom, uh, may she rest in peace, would not be very proud of me for some of the language I've used on conference calls or talking with Kristen or venting with my long-suffering partner, Pamela and you know many other people so i'm not necessarily proud of every word that's crossed my lips it doesn't happen very much on a podcast because who wants to listen to that but it's hard not to let the anger bubble over sometimes because when you're when you know you're being lied to when you know you're being misled and and it's gone on and on and on that just doesn't sit well after a while yeah, and that's entirely understandable. 
all of that is understandable, Bill. You don't have to confess to not being perfect. I mean, now you've got the politer option of Foxtrot Oscar to throw into your toolbox in, <laughs> in those discussions. But, you know, I, yeah. I don't doubt that at times you've sworn being angry. I mean, quite bloody right too. And actually the anger drives you into activism, you know, and I still remember listening to a brother whose sister Julia was shot dead and she was on the phone for seven minutes. She had reported to police many times. And I still remember her brother literally losing his shit to a room full of police officers. And I've never seen senior officers just sit there. You could hear a pin drop and he really gave it to them. And quite right too. I wanted to applaud. He, he felt terrible afterwards, by the way, because he's a very polite man. But I said, Frank, you really stuck it to them. And that was everything they needed to hear. And that's what galvanized them into action. So, and I mean the police, that galvanized them into doing a proper review. So at times anger can be the motivator, the driver for change. So Yes, we don't want to get stuck in anger and being, you know, sweary and shouty, particularly on a podcast, but your anger is justified. So let's keep talking anyway. We'll wrap our episode. And unless there's anything else you want to add, Kristen or Bill, I know we're at the tail end of it. Anything? I just think that uh, everybody who is continuing to remain vigilant and find cases that they think may be connected to Alan Wade Wilmer Sr., Thank you, first of all, for continuing to do that work. We appreciate it. And please send that information to law enforcement when you have it. You can send it to us too, absolutely, but please make sure that it gets to the right people so that they are well-equipped to do the jobs that they need to be doing. Everybody has been so tremendous over this last 21-day period and so supportive of Bill and the rest of these families and us in trying to do the job that we're doing that we really just can't thank people enough. And we urge people to please continue looking at the photos, look at the information posted by the Virginia State Police and the FBI, and please just keep calling in those tips and sending in that information. Everything that you can add is going to help pin Alan Wade Wilmer Sr. to the cases that he is involved with. And we thank everybody for the help that they're doing in that. Good shout out. And you can contact Virginia State Police, my new best friends who I email quite a lot, questions at vsp.virginia.gov. And it's important that you do do that. I'll put out pictures again of um, Alan Wade Wilmer Senior on social media and the truck and so forth so that you can see the descriptions. So I really hope that people continue to be so thoughtful and caring in their transactions on this case with us, with you, Bill and, and Kristen. Remember, it is Bill's life. It's not entertainment. Although I do hope that we make a docu-series that's an investigative docu-series and get feet on the ground in this case, because I think that's what's needed, a high quality investigative series. And the power of that can never really be underestimated. And I know you did a an oxygen show, but it just really does underline for families how important it is to get your case out there, for it to be national and international that people see and understand. It, it really is an important part of the process and for it to be done well, that you're happy with how it's portrayed. I'm 100% down with this on one condition and one condition only. The show must be called Fox Trot Oscar. Well, I don't have a problem with that. I've told a fair few people to Foxtrot Oscar in my time, Bill, and they look at me very confused. But 
some people totally understand what's being said. And that would be your new favourite <laughs> phrase that you can pull out wherever and whenever and smile and people would think it's a wonderful thing. Kristen and I are both going to be saying, as our good friend Laura Richards likes to say, Fox try to Oscar. That's right. Most people in the Met would get that or they would have got that. Um, I've been talking to some of my former colleagues and some of the the language of, you know, the codified language that we would use. I mean, I haven't used it for a very long time, but but out it all comes. And, you know, normally it's things that is just shorthand that just comes second nature to you. But I've been out the job for a long time and uh, not so second nature, but I'll always be polite, you know, and until my boundaries are pushed and I might not be quite so polite. And I think, Right now, we want to try and shine a light on the case and we want to encourage law enforcement to do their damn job because people's lives depend on it and still do. If we still have anybody out there who's offending, because we may have multiple perpetrators. So that's why we have to always have an open mind and ensure you know, local people do put in intelligence about cases. So I'm going to end there with, with my end phrase, which is always to my listeners to be curious, ask questions and always trust your instinct. Here's my final thought and ask before the episode wraps. I really appreciate you listening to Crime Analyst. And if you like what I do, please take two minutes to leave a five-star review wherever you listen to me. It really helps others find me and my work, and it helps with the ratings too. Crime Analyst is written, produced and hosted by me, Laura Richards. Sound engineering by Jason Sheasley at Abridged Audio. Cover art and graphics by Chris Rowbottom at Syndicate and music by Kilrood. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.